Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, the Christian leftist podcast where even the hosts aren't paying attention. I'm Ben Molyneux-Heathington and I'm joined as always by Adam Spears. Adam, did you know we did a whole episode on the monarchy like a few weeks ago? The, the, the what? Yeah, like 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 I don't know, like six weeks ago or something. We did like a whole episode on 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 the monarchy. I mean, were we just being really preemptive and and sort of beating the opposition? I, I think it was around the jubilee, and um, the reason I mentioned this is because last week I was like, yeah, we might do a, a full episode of the monarchy and really kind of delve into that. And then kind of later in the episode, you mentioned like, oh, you know, we did the jubilee episode, and as I was editing it, I was like. We did the what? <laughs> and then I looked on our podcast feed and discovered that we had done a whole episode around the Queen's Jubilee about the monarchy, and I had just scrubbed it clean from my mind. I, I, I don't remember a word of it. It was really nice listening to it. Which kind of like, to be honest, it doesn't really surprise me, because I know that when I, like, I've been trying to like, like doing a, an episode on the monarchy has been like my thing for a while, because I'm actually, you know, obviously very much not in favour of a monarchy, but like quite interested in it as a sort of cultural phenomenon and a, and a vehicle to kind of manufacture consent and stuff. So I've wanted to do an episode on it for a while. And every time I floated the idea, you've just been like, no, no, I don't want to do that. So like, I'm not surprised. <laughs> that does sound like me. Yeah, and I think as well you edited that episode, which is not, I mean, you've edited some of them, but majority, I think, I've done. All right, all right, just trying to make out that you do more work than me. Well, no, I actually think in man hours you've done a lot more work because uh, you spend, like, I don't know, like 10 times the amount of time editing an episode that I do <laughs> because you're so much more of a perfectionist. Yeah. But I think because I didn't edit it, usually I listen to these podcasts, like, oh, God, like probably five times before they actually, like, are released into the world. Well, yeah, because you've got no choice, have you? Yeah, yeah, but with that one I didn't edit, so I, I said some words and then they just disappeared into the ether. I, I would have listened to it when it came out just to check you hadn't done me dirty on the edit. But, um, I, yeah, I no memory whatsoever of doing that. <laughs> so um, let me let me guarantee the lovely listeners of this podcast that we won't be boring you again with a whole episode on the monarchy. I, I said we might do one last time, uh, but only because I don't pay any attention to the podcast I'm recording. That's fair. I mean, you know, that's not to say we won't touch on it um, or sort of use it as part of like what we're going to talk about in the future, but like we're not going to like dedicate. No, no, this is this is a guarantee. I will cut any mention of the monarchy from this podcast <laughs> from, from from now. Like this is the last time we'll ever. If Adam talks, there'll be whole gaps in the podcast where the conversation just doesn't make sense. Just assume Adam started talking about the monarchy. Is it, is it just going to be like a like a beep noise? Like I'm yeah, swearing yeah. all the way through. No, it will be a uh, like a record scratch because that's cooler. <laughs> so this week we are going to do a a full mind grapes episode. Uh, usually I say we start as always with mind grapes, but uh, this week we start middle and finish with mind grapes. What else is on my mind grapes? We've got a bunch of stuff we wanted to talk about. Adam, you mentioned that every time you suggested we do a podcast about the Queen and the monarchy, I was like, ugh, it's just kind of boring. I don't disagree with you, but no. Uh, and there was another topic that you you have tried repeatedly to get me to do an episode on, and every time I've gone, uh, whatever, I just, it's, not, it's not particularly interesting to me. And that is Theology Slam. Adam, what's a Theology Slam? Uh, <laughs> so Theology Slam is... A uh, it's an annual event where uh, it's organised by um, I think SCM Press, the Church Times newspaper, 
Um, it's it's basically it's quite a like establishment kind of thing. Like there's lots of big. It's like the organised by the kind of six main middle of the road Anglican organisations is probably the shorthand for it. Yeah, although not all of those organisations are actually Anglican, but it is like strongly linked to the Church of England, sort of. They may not technically be Anglican, but they have a very strong middle of the road Anglican vibe to them, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. So, so it's this um, uh, competition that's organised by these organisations. Basically, young-ish people. I think the the upper age limit was thirty, and now it's thirty-five. Um, youngish people sort of aspiring theologians if you like are encouraged to submit uh, an essay and then like you know potentially give a talk i think possibly a series of talks and and like have a, a grand final where three or four um finalists sort of give a give a talk and then are judged by a by a panel of uh, judges and then obviously the winner is crowned you know the king or queen of the theologians yeah in some respects like theology slam has unearthed some really interesting stuff some interesting speakers young theologians and i think that's that's to be commended there's there's some good stuff that's coming out of this and i and i wouldn't want to take away from that i think there's a few areas where i sort of have concerns i think it's fair to say <laughs> um and and one of them is just this fundamental kind of principle at the heart of what theology slam is doing and that is the principle of competition i gotta say i i really have a problem with making theology a competition and i would argue you know by extension kind of making the gospel competition right it very much reminds me of the always sunny bit where one of them writes a musical and the others are like right but who is it against who are we shoving it in the face of who is it versus like taking theology and being like how do we make this competitive yeah. i need a winner of theology i wrote a musical huh you wrote a musical why why, why did you do that to, uh, just to write a musical what does there have to be a reason i don't think so yeah there does nobody writes a musical for no reason it doesn't make sense all right well this guy did so there you go who's the mark what yeah. No, there's no, there's no mark, guys. I, I, I wrote a musical. It's pretty damn good. Okay, I want to put it on. Right. What's your angle? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Who's, whose face are we shoving this? You don't shove in? a musical in someone's face. What are you talking about? Right, but who versus? Who are we doing it versus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. As if you can win at theology. To me, that is very odd and kind of flies in the face of some of the stuff that I, I personally interpret Jesus as, as doing, uh, and what the church should be doing. So I, I, I kind of have a problem with it. On the other hand, um, I think we both know multiple people who have been in the final um, one year or, or another. No, no. You know multiple people and my wife knows multiple people. All right, I'm people. sorry. Goodness I me. don't know people. I wow. try not to leave the house. I don't like to socialise. <laughs> I sound like I'm like really name dropping and stuff now. I'm actually not going to say any names. But like the point is, <laughs> I, I do know either, you know, fairly well or moderately well or have met you know like a lot of the theology slam finalists and so i don't want to be nasty about those people and actually that's not what i'm going to be anyway because as i say there's some really good stuff that comes out of this um, and a lot of those finalists have done really interesting work and it, you know the, the fact of the matter is that this is one of the main vehicles now to getting theology out there and and i just think there's got to be a better way of doing that you know there's got to be, you know, rather than have a competition, why why can't we do it a different way and and really genuinely 
kind of value theology for its own sake. So, yeah, I don't want to be too harsh on the people who participate on that, or even the people who who have some role in that that isn't sort of entering it as a competition. But I think it says something about the kind of nature of, you know, where we're at as a society, that that is something that we would even consider doing, right, rather than some other vehicle for this kind of thing. And as I say, you know, there's a... This is really kind of aligned with a lot of establishment kind of figures and organizations. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised. But for me, it really sort of, it became very obvious. Um, I don't know if it was like last year or the year before's Theology Slam, where during the break where the judges go off and sort of deliberate about who they're going to award the prize to, they had a, I think one or two talks by... Um, I think this is like a couple of the spon- like people from the organizations that sponsored it or something like that. And they gave these talks that I just, uh, uh, I remember, I think I was watching it when I was in my kitchen cooking something and I ended up swearing at the screen, I think, because I just got this guy and I can't even remember his name now, but he's just talking about how bloody wonderful business is and, and how if we're going to really, you know, um, spread the gospel and, um, then we need to do business really well and 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 it's this whole idea that you see a lot in particular parts of evangelicalism but it's present you know across the board as well where there's this idea that we really need to have christians in high places uh, and especially in business and in politics one that comes to mind for me is is the um businessman ken costa who is uh, a big name in certain parts of the evangelical world. You've got to give him his full name. Sorry, have I? What's his full name? Ken Costa. No, he doesn't own Costa Coffee. Stop asking. <laughs> Does he not? I, I assumed he did. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I believe uh, Costa is owned by Christians because they let church groups and stuff use Costa for free. But that guy is not the owner of uh, Costa Coffee. And, uh, yeah, they always... Um, there was always this thing where people were like, oh my god, he owns Costa Coffee. They'd be like, no, he's not even that interesting. He's just some businessman. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested. I'd be interested to look into what he actually, do, you know, does do in terms of business. Well, I mean, he he doesn't do anything. He's he's a businessman. He, <laughs> he gets other people to do things. Well, That's yeah, quite basic right. Marxism. Adam. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll change. I'll change what, what I'm saying. I'd be quite interested to know which particular people he directly exploits. <laughs> is that is that better? Yeah, it's better. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would like to be. We're not bothered about being Orthodox Christians, but by God, we're going to be Orthodox Marxists. So. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> All right. Orthodox Marxism is a particular strand of Marxism that I do not identify with. So you can you can you can have that one for yourself, right? I don't even know what it means. I just <laughs> thought it was funny. Right. Okay. Anyway, point being, Ken Costa uh, represents this kind of very common thing that you have in this in in certain parts of Christianity, especially in this country. You know, where you basically you give a platform to business people or politicians who happen to be christian and and yeah just let them talk at people for a while and i remember years ago when i uh when i went to i think it was um do you remember when soul survivor which for anyone who doesn't know is a sort of evangelical ish kind of ish well no well because the thing is there's a difference between being evangelical and being charismatic right 
yeah, it's definitely charismatic, and it's you know, I, yeah, okay, it's definitely evangelical as well. But the point's going to say what? You... <laughs> but the point, the point I want to make though is that actually, to be fair to it, or though I have a lot of criticisms, it did try to kind of get people along from all kinds of different denominations and expressions, and was very clear that it didn't want any proselytizing between denominations um, at, at their event. So you know, just to give them their due. But anyway, this Ken Costa guy, I remember, used to get up on the stage. They'd get him to do the odd preach here and there. And I remember this one time that I saw him on this centre stage. You know, bear in mind, we got, what, seven, eight thousand people in this huge tent. And this businessman gets up and, and he started it off by playing um, a video. And it was... It was when the Queen... I don't know if it was some kind of jubilee or something, like one of the golden jubilee or something like that, where they floated this golden barge down the River Thames that had the Queen in it, I think, and it was... I don't know. It was, you know, how they do all this pageantry and stuff. Anyway, King Costa shows this, and then he just prattles on for about 10 minutes about how bloody marvellous the Queen is and how she's, you know, this um, example to us all of Christian virtue and all the rest of it. And I just remember basically internally vomiting um, for about 10 minutes. And I do not, to this day, I do not remember what his point was in that entire talk. I just know that he really, really loved the Queen. And and it's this kind of thing where you have these very, very establishment people saying very, very establishment things, you know, essentially in order to manufacture consent, whether they realise it or not. And and it's that same kind of thing that I I see going on with things like Theology Slam. As I say, that's not to say that that's all that's going on. There's a lot of good that comes out of it as well. I, I just think we really need to rethink how we do theology um, and and how we kind of lift up those voices, especially voices from the margins as well, because there, there is a lot of good theology that does come out of this from people who have a point to make, a theological point to make about a, a particular issue. I, I think we need to do a better way, think of a better way to do that. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says, 
I warmly welcome the newly formed group Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, I watched the entirety of the most recent Theology Slam at Adam's insistence, the sacrifices I make for this podcast. <laughs> I say watched. I've been on YouTube at 1.5 speed while I was playing video games. But um, welcome, to, welcome to ADHD life. All of my videos are sped up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why do people talk so slow? Oh, my God. Um, Including, yeah, including uh, us, to be fair. Well, certainly, yeah, you, like, yeah. I, I get bored listening to you, Dean. Yeah, that's that's, that's fair. Yeah, and you know, actually, the preachers, talks, whatever, were, were all pretty good. There was some interesting theology coming from it. Mm-hmm. They mentioned this. I, I believe, like, um, preaching competitions are quite a Baptist thing. Yeah. So there's kind of a history in there that maybe you and I don't really have any. Yeah relationship to but i'm still quite willing to criticize it yeah yeah but something that struck me so you had a talk on kind of issues of gender from a non-binary person um you had a talk on kind of trauma and healing from that and you had a talk on I guess justice more broadly all three were yeah a good bit of theology with some interesting stuff in there but all three to varying extents they came from places of hurt and pain and i want to be really careful about this because there is something really valuable about theology that comes from hurt and pain you know like if you're taking the incarnation seriously then our god is a god that was um, tortured to death there is value in theology that is rooted in in the real suffering of people but there was also a tendency within i guess broader culture and kind of what you might generally refer to as liberalism, to kind of perform your trauma yeah, in ways that are, they allow you to defend certain ideas or offer certain perspectives or, at its absolute worst, kind of get away with stuff by performing your trauma. And there is something, I think, a little bit potentially unhealthy and unhelpful about that and the fact that all three of those talks I don't know how many you know maybe they only got three applications I don't know but I suspect that not all of the applications drew on individuals pain and trauma but all three of the ones that made it through to the final did yeah and I think there's something very important about recognizing that asking people to perform their trauma in order to take them seriously is is really bad um, and that is not to to take shots at any of those three people in particular, because mm-hmm. I say all, all three talks were really good and powerful, interesting, but more to suggest why is it that whoever made these decisions put through three talks, all of which that involved people performing trauma for an audience? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely something almost voyeuristic about it, isn't there? You know, which which is just odd. But I think the thing is as well is that so often we see these things performed in this way these traumas performed in this way and they're heard in that moment 
but actually nothing really changes or very little really changes. Yeah. It has little effect on how the church actually approaches these things in reality. You know, it's all just kind of abstraction, really, you know. And and I think that can be quite a dangerous thing because in the end, it kind of ends up making it look like you're dealing with it, but actually you're you're doing nothing. Next up on our mind grapes is a little bit of international flavour, uh, which makes it sound much happier than it is. Uh, we will start uh, with our Italian friends. Uh, remember, it's never racist to do an Italian accent, and that has only become more true with the recent elections in Italy, in which the far right have, uh, I believe, won the presidency and um, yeah, been been very successful electorally. Um, the birthplace of fascism appears to be returning to its roots. The thing is, as well, is that right-wing politics has always had a strong foothold in Italy. I mean, Berlusconi, right? He he was uh, prime minister, I think. Was he prime minister or president? I forget. For years. And, all right, maybe not quite far right, but, like, definitely in that direction. And, and I think, you know, it's it's hardly surprising that they would end up far right again. Yeah, obviously, um, Italy suffered famously quite heavily during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. I do not have any level of expertise around Italian politics, but I would imagine that that is not an irrelevant fact to the uh, yeah rise of the far right. For sure. I, I think another thing that I find really interesting is that, so an, an Italian friend of mine, you know, we talk politics every so often, and and he he was talking to me about, um, and this is actually reflected in football as well. So he and I talk about football, and we talk about politics and the, and the intersection between these things. But he talks about how you have red cities, um, which are cities with a strong kind of communist presence, um, and you have black cities, which are um, cities with a very strong fascist presence. Um, so you got fascist cities effectively and you've got communist cities and it seems that for decades there's been this back and forth really between these different cities and regions basically trying to to implement their brand of of politics and and that is also reflected in the football you know certain football teams i mean we you know we have that a little bit here but nothing like to the same extent they do in other countries and especially in italy where you know certain teams are absolutely um identified with um a communist or more sort of left wing group and other teams are seen as fascist um i mean i, I remember paolo di canio who who calls himself a fascist he did a is it like an inverted Nazi salute, but it's certainly a, a, a Nazi salute to the Lazio fans when he was playing for them? Um, Lazio are a, a fascist team, what would be considered a fascist team. Um, so I've always found that kind of, um, yeah, that that interaction and intersection of football and, and politics really is interesting, especially in Italy. But yeah, I mean, this, Italy is a country that is very very polarized we think that we're polarized here I italy it really is you know and of course 
what that means is, you know, for some people, it's 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 life or death, isn't it? Really, let's face it. Uh, especially when we look at issues of migration and and so on. Um, Italy being, you know, in the Mediterranean and first port of call for a lot of people fleeing um, other countries. Yeah, absolutely. Moving to a different part of the world entirely, we are recording the day after the Brazilian elections. The current president of Brazil is a man called Jair Bolsonaro, a man who loves two things, far-right politics and catching COVID. <laughs> he said it three times. I think he said it three times now, possibly more. It, it's become a bit of a meme that he loves to catch COVID. And he did look ill, like really ill every time. Uh, so whatever futuristic treatments they're giving him, we should all get. He is the current president. He won f- last time out, essentially, by uh, locking up his most prominent opposition, a man by the name of Lula. Apparently it means squid in Portuguese, which is, which <laughs> is great. So there were some badly translated like graphics during the rounds where uh, it was like Bolsonaro versus squid, uh, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, last time out, uh, Lula was going to run. He was projected to win. Uh, he is a self-identified socialist. Um, Adam, I know you'd probably have bones to pick about his particular variety, <laughs> but I think we could uh, broadly accept that he should be considered on the left in some sense. So, yeah, I mean, it's certainly in electoral politics, yeah. God damn it, <laughs> bloody anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> he got locked up on charges that were subsequently proved to be total nonsense, wasn't able to run the election, and Bolsonaro won. He is out, he's been fighting back, and the expectation going into yesterday's election was that Lula had a pretty good chance of winning outright. You have to get an outright majority or it goes to a two-person runoff. He did not get the outright majority. He, he was ahead of Bolsonaro, but not by as much as people were expecting. And um, Bolsonaro's party had a number of successes in the in the election uh, for kind of members of their parliament and that sort of thing. I don't know if their system is a parliamentary system, so um, please just assume that I'm broadly saying something right, but do your own research because <laughs> God knows I'm an idiot. Yeah, so it was it was a bad night. It, it still looks likely that Lula will will win overall, from what I can see. But but it's tough. It really is anyone's anyone's to win. The consequences in Brazil are likely to be quite dire. Political violence is sadly quite common from the far right that Bolsonaro represents, and it's only going to be more intense. It is very likely that if not Bolsonaro himself, then certainly prominent people within his movement will be. Well, they've already been saying the elections are rigged and all that sort of thing. They'll be dialing that up even more. Yeah, it's really bad. I wish I had something more positive to say. Uh, we were all hoping that Lula would take a first-round victory and get rid of the fascist dickhead Bolsonaro. But sadly, it has not turned out that way. There's also, importantly, a really interesting religious element to this as well. Because Brazil... Unlike Italy, actually, I mean, you know, obviously Italy is traditionally a Catholic country. Obviously, the Vatican City is entirely encapsulated, not just within Italy, but within Rome itself. And and of course, Christianity in, in, in Italy is is used as a, yeah, again, a way to manufacture consent, to hark back to the good old days, that kind of thing. In Brazil, though, people... Do you know still practice religion in considerable number? It's overwhelmingly a Catholic country, but 
a, a kind of Pentecostal brand, if you like, of evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism particularly, um, has grown massively in sort of the last 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years. And the majority of those people um, tend to be right wing. That is not to say that they all are. There are, you know, significant portions of the evangelical kind of population in brazil that are not far right and not right wing but ultimately someone like bolsonaro is always and he does he's always trying to appeal to those kind of conservative family values and that kind of thing in order to um, bolster his vote from the religious right and i think that's a big part of the reason that you're seeing a resurgence in in the far right in Brazil because of course Brazil was in a military dictatorship for um, many years and people hated it. Uh, coincidentally, Bolsonaro. One of the controversial things about him is that um, probably because he's a former military man, he often talks pretty glowingly about the military dictatorship in Brazil, who, who killed and disappeared, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Brazil was had had left-wing governments for for a long time but we have seen a resurgence for a number of reasons in the far right there not least because of a growing conservative evangelical tendency uh, there as well Hi everyone it's Ben I've just finished uh, editing this episode I wanted to drop in a quick content warning we are about to discuss the death of Chris Cabba, who was killed by the police. So lots of content warning for uh, police violence, police murder, um, racism, all that sort of thing. It's going to be about 10 minutes long, so if you want to miss this out, if you skip forward to about 38 minutes, you'll be able to move on to a different segment of the podcast Um yeah, we think it's important to talk about, but we wanted to make sure that people were able to have the time and space to look after themselves and make good decisions about what they want to listen to. So, yeah, be warned. While we are talking about extremely depressing things, we wanted to briefly touch on the death of Chris Carver, who, uh, for those of you who don't know, was a young black man who was killed by the police in London. It was a few weeks ago now. Um, but uh, yeah, answers have not yet been forthcoming. Uh, he was driving a car. The police have said that the car was not registered to him, but to someone else. I think we all know at this point to take police statements about these matters with a pinch of salt. But even if that is the case, what happened next was totally disgusting, which was essentially the car was stopped and the police get out of the car. Boxed in, sorry. Let's let's be clear about that. The car was boxed in. The car was boxed in, and the uh, police shoot him in the head through the car window. He was completely unarmed. He was offering no threat whatsoever to the police officers. I was going to say, let's call it what it is. It's your choice. You can call it a murder. You can call it an execution. It is awful that this has happened. 
Originally, they didn't even suspend the firearms officer who took the shot. They have now done so. Um, as of a few days ago, he was yet to be interviewed under caution as part of the investigation. Um, and let me tell you that if there was video footage of you murdering someone in broad daylight, it wouldn't take this long for you to be interviewed under caution. No. And I think it is, uh, it's really, we've talked before about how in this country, in terms of the uh, police murder of uh, black people, that is something that mostly happens in custody. It's death in custody because our police are mostly unarmed, although the number of firearms officers is increasing, particularly in London. Um, the people don't die in the streets anywhere near as often as they do in the States, but instead they die in a police station whilst in custody. This is obviously a major exception to that rule. It feels like a a very American case, if that makes sense, you know public execution of a black man for, as far as anyone can tell, the crime of being black in London. I, I want to disagree with you on a, on a minor kind of thing here. In the UK, the way custody is defined actually starts well before you've actually been nicked, right? So technically speaking, Chris Carver was in custody. So all of these statistics that since since 19 i think it's about 1990 there've been um well over 1800 deaths um in custody which as i say includes police interaction and and uh, you know I, I think i've said this on the podcast before but it's you know worth repeating uh, because one of the ways um you know we always hear that the us Police in the USA are so much worse. It's not that bad in the UK. Well, we've had more than 1,800 deaths in custody um, over the last uh, just over 30 years, right? And as of last year, we have seen one successful prosecution of a police officer for unlawfully killing someone in custody. The last one before that was in 1986. Even American police are prosecuted successfully more regularly for causing death, uh, unlawful death in custody um, than British police are. Um, so it is not the case that British police are, you know, oh, so much better than the American police. Like maybe in specific ways they are, um, but that does not mean that people and, and specifically uh, people of colour, and even more specifically, black people are not being murdered regularly by the police, often in broad daylight. Um, and in this case, yeah, as you say, I mean, I, I would personally say that that was an execution. Yeah, absolutely. A, a horrific thing to happen. Um, the new Met Police Commissioner had gone into post the week that it happened. And there's been this weird thing of like, Oh, you kind of feel sorry for him, and I, I don't. Sorry, no. don't don't feel sorry for the man at all. He's obviously replacing Chrisida Dick, who was just a magnet for controversy. And the idea is basically that he's there to um, do a few public uh, inclusivity uh, PR stunts and uh, keep his head down as much as possible to try and rehabilitate the reputation of the Met Police, which is at a pretty low point right now. We had, you know, a Black Lives Matter movement in the UK, and we spoke about this a while ago, but I was really... 
really upset actually to see the way in which that was you know in the, in the US you saw a very vocal and aggressive opposition to Black Lives Matter in the UK uh, Black Lives Matter was slowly incorporated into the mainstream and all of its radical roots and actual demands were slowly withdrawn until all that was left was a vague affirmation that uh, you should be nice to black people. And yeah, it just feels like, I don't know, man, when are we going to get an actual serious movement for black lives? And, you know, I think when I'm saying we, I'm probably talking to white people, you know, the black community in London came out again in force to protest. They had a vigil, the, the, the protest marches, you know, they have been fighting the good fight, as it were. But I don't know, it just feels like Black Lives Matter in the US didn't exactly make the wide sweeping changes, but it made a real concrete difference in terms of discourses and in terms of people's awareness, you know, conversations about police abolition. They might be you know, upsetting a lot of people in the US, but they are conversations that are being had in the mainstream because of that Black Lives Matter movement. Whereas in the UK, any sort of radical impulse, or really any sort of impulse towards change in any real sense, was neutered out of our Black Lives Matter movement. I guess if if it's not when a black guy gets murdered in broad daylight while he was unarmed with video footage of it, if that isn't enough... To, to start something real, I don't know what is. Yeah, I, I kind of want to go back and talk about the new Met Police Commissioner, if if I may. The new Met Police Commissioner is a guy called Sir Mark Rowley. And he's coming in to replace, as you said, um, Cressida Dick. Now, we know that any police force, but particularly the Met Police, is, is a fundamentally conservative institution um it's not there for our good and that's a big part of the reason that it is so institutionally racist and and you know not able to change mark rowley is by no means going to do a better job than cressida dick because mark rowley is a, a just a an inherently reactionary figure he was in the headlines very recently um you know obviously about the same time that we've got this you know just just after chris cabba was murdered um so very recently because he refused to meet the president of the black police association and you know let's not you know we're not going to say that the black police association are our comrades at the black police association right right yeah yeah but the point is if if you are coming to to lead the biggest police force in the country that has been identified time and again quite clearly to be institutionally racist that keeps murdering black people on the street right and you are refusing to meet the organization within your own organization that's there to represent black police officers right yeah like that is incredibly reactionary and and we shouldn't be surprised by this because you know Mark Rowley obviously has been um he, you know he's come to that role under one of the most reactionary governments that we've ever seen um and you know they've been pretty consistent in their their messaging on on all this stuff and on black lives matter and that kind of thing so we shouldn't be surprised about that but at least Cressida Dick 
had regular meetings with the president of the National Black Police Association. This guy, he ain't going to do it, and things are not going to get better just because we've got rid of Cressida Dick. I think they're going to get worse. Let's talk about something now that is still pretty grim, but uh, is at least kind of funny or amusing in some ways. And I think you might have had some fun with Adam. Uh, How did you spend your weekend, Adam? (laughs) Uh, I was protesting at the Tory party conference. Yeah, you and your friends from UKIP were all protesting that they weren't (laughs) going far enough right, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Thousands of people turned up from UKIP. Mate, UKIP don't even have thousands of supporters anymore, so... <laughs> yeah, not anymore. They went to that... Whichever party Nigel Farage founded after the one he founded after the one he founded after UKIP. It was the Brexit party, and now it's something else, isn't it? I don't yeah, I don't know. I lose track of it. Um, not that it matters, really. Did you did you, did you, you murder Michael Fabrican? Because that's what I'm hearing on social media. <laughs> uh, no, I was there, right? I, I saw it happening. Um, and it did get. Do you a bit... want to give some context for this? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so first of all, the Tories decided to hold this year's Tory Party conference in the Labour voting post-industrial city of Birmingham, which, you know, depending on your particular outlook, if you're a Tory, is probably not a good idea. Plenty of Tories actually, you know, really gloated in it and and really loved the fact that they were getting, you know, it's this really nasty streak of Tories who um, just love to be hated on. I mean, we we were actually um, walking back afterwards with our with our signs, um, and there was nothing like especially offensive on our on our on our signs. It was just sort of laying out Tory policy, saying it's bad, that kind of thing. And this woman who um, had, we'd just seen her um, towards the end of the protest, she'd come and danced with her presumably husband in front of everyone, you know, taking a bow and everything in a mocking kind of way. And it was just nasty stuff. When we walked past, we didn't make any contact, like eye contact or anything with her. But um, I sort of noticed her walking our way as we were going to get some food. She read our sign, one of our signs, and she won't pass. Bear in mind, this is a woman easily in her 60s, very posh kind of woman <laughs> at that, walks past and just goes, just under her breath, kind of, oh, fuck off, <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> it's like, as Lauren, my, my girlfriend, sort of said at the time, you know, <laughs> that's, that's nothing to us. Like, we we have wasted no energy on that, you know? it's It's completely emotionally nothing to us she is the one that's getting worked up about that um but it's they're the kind of people that you're you're dealing with the conference itself was held in um, a few different buildings in the city center very close to each other um, and also a a big marquee um sort of between them and it was all cordoned off with um temporary but fairly solid fencing um and these uh, uh sort of large kind of turnstiles that you you know you can't get through by getting over them because they're like a you know very tall and whatever and after the march you know the we all gathered at at that point and around a lot of these areas and tories were coming in and out of these turnstiles and naturally getting lots of booze and everything and at one point michael fabricant came out and you know got a lot of 
anger, um, which is understandable because, you know, Michael Fabricant is a really nasty piece of work. But I tell you what I was amazed with. I was absolutely amazed. And Michael Fabricant, to be fair to him, you know, commented on this as well. I was amazed at the restraint of the people in the crowd because, you know, you've got a prominent Tory like Michael Fabricant. Well, it's also, Fabricant particularly, it's that he was ushered by the security the wrong way. Yes, he was. He was, but he wasn't the only one. There were right. p- plenty who were. But Fabricant find, and other people, from what you said, find themselves essentially in the crowd of protesters. Literally, right slap bang in the middle at the most sort of angry point at the front of the march. People really angry at him, but nobody hit him. You know, nothing nothing happened in that respect. It was remarkably controlled, self-controlled, though, you know, because the police were not there. Um, I mean, they did come in. To, you know, at one point, but to, to kind of escort him through the rest of it. But by which time, you know, he he had been through the main part of of the crowd. But there was no violence. There were, I think, I saw one minor scuffle where some Tory and and um, someone else. There was a bit of a pushing match. I think it's, he had bashed into him or something, and uh, I don't quite know what happened there, but. Um, either way, the the protester certainly took issue with um, what this Tory had done. Yeah, there was a m- very minor scuffle, um, but certainly no arrests. And the police weren't even there when it happened. And by the time it had finished or anything, they came in afterwards because that's what the police do. They um, don't actually <laughs> do a very good job of policing this kind of thing a lot of the time. So yeah, that I mean that was that was the the kind of long and short of it really um is that it was a surprisingly angry vocal protest but but not a violent one we then gathered at the entrance to uh, another of their buildings where they were i think it, the proceedings had had moved to and you know did the the standard chants and 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 that kind of thing and yeah i mean it was the idea was to try and disrupt it as much as we could by making a lot of noise there was a lot of noise made, certainly. Whether it disrupted anything, I have absolutely no idea because none of us were <laughs> going to be getting inside. But it was good to see that there was, you know, they were not made to feel welcome by any means. There were a lot of people there. There was a BBC article that I read about the, the protests that said um, hundreds of people came out. This is the thing. If, if establishment media platforms especially like the bbc report on these things and that is a big if they will always downplay it right there were not hundreds of people at this protest there were thousands all you have to do is google some photos of it um to to see that but they will always downplay this stuff that's a regular um tactic that you see them use with any protest especially left-wing protest so yeah there were thousands of people all kinds of all different kinds of people, all different kinds of organizations as well, actually, coming out to protest them. You know, it was good to see. You know, we need more. Honestly, we need we need more than that. We need more than protest, because protest you know, to protest is a tool that we need in our arsenal, but it is not the only tool we need in our arsenal when people are dying because of policies that are being put on us. And and, you know, worth saying as well. Very, very soon after this disastrous mini-budget that they brought out as well. Yeah, uh, they've not been doing very well. Liz Truss 
and Quasi Karteng, who are close confidants, <laughs> I believe the, uh, the term is. Um, you got to respect moving your fuck buddy in next door to you when you're the prime minister, right? Like, is that? I, I don't know about this. Is that alleged fuck buddy or or genuinely? I mean, uh, this, yes, these are the rumours. Right. <laughs> the rumours that Liz Truss is that. Um, and we don't slut shame on this podcast, but we do lose trust slain. Um, and and Quateng, to be honest, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the rumours around Liz Truss are eye-opening and uh, eye-watering in some cases. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'd, I'd, but, yeah, unfortunately, they spent too much time uh, having fun and not enough time making sure they didn't completely tank the economy. Yeah. Uh, they've, it's kind of stabilised today a little bit, but... It, um, yeah, it was a bit of a clusterfuck this week, wasn't it? I mean, I think it was... I can't remember exactly what they said, but it, it was something like it. the pound tanked to its worst level or, or, or it dipped fur, further than it had ever dipped before or something like that. Um, I can't remember the exact nature of it, but it was not good, really not good. And, of course, you know, the important thing to remember in all of this is that it is never going to be the rich people who feel the brunt of this never you know even when you know you've got people who who are part of that powerful class saying this was a bad mini budget it's a bad idea even when it's you know the the people who have who, who have invested in you know have the, have the sort of capital to make investments are the ones kind of withdrawing that and and you know collectively tanking the pound because they know it's a terrible budget it's still not them who are going to be feeling the brunt of this right it is always it is always those with with nothing or, or very little to begin with yeah and that's why you know on one level obviously the whole concept of currency exchange and all the stuff we recognize there's something a bit ridiculous about it right you know like these are all kind of invented things we've placed over the top mm-hmm. of the real needs of human beings and their ability to produce commodities to meet those needs right but yeah unfortunately while those things might be imaginary, their impact is extremely real. And the financial system going to hell is going to have real-world impacts on the poorest and most vulnerable people in our society. So, you know, whilst we'd like to see the end of this system, uh, it going into meltdown is very, very bad. Yeah, yeah, in the immediate term, uh, it, it absolutely is. Um, you know, we're already... Um, looking at a cost of living crisis we're already looking at record energy bills you know this is this has happened at a time when people are already feeling the pinch and people are genuinely scared because people are going to die right especially this winter you know people are already dying but more and more people are going to die that said you know we've seen some u-turns um we've seen liz truss u-turn on the abolishing the top rate of of tax so that's something Uh, And I think that's the thing is we have to keep up our opposition to this stuff, because even if we are, you know, even if it is just protests and hissing and moaning and and getting on radio shows to have a go at Liz Truss and and her minions, um, even if that's all we're doing, that can have, you know, a a level of impact. Nothing like what we need. But again, it's one of those things that has to be uh, a tool in our arsenal. 
that's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Uh, a weapon in our arsenal or a, to- a tool in our toolbox. There you go. Thank you. I was very worried by that. As a former English teacher, not a proper English teacher, just Teffel. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, yeah, I w- that, that bothered me that I'd made that. <laughs> I, w- I will say as well, theological colleges um, like the one I study at, are not the most radical places in the world. But what was lovely about it yesterday is that I turned up at the protest and uh, one of my lecturers was there with her partner. So that was nice to see as well. Yeah, that is excellent. So whilst the Tories are screwing up, uh, our friends in the Labour Party are uh, taking advantage of this moment to uh, do some really important stuff. Um, I'm joking, they're doing nothing. But they have launched a faith champions network (laughs) adam on a scale of one to unspeakably excited how excited are you about the faith champions network (laughs) uh is it possible to go lower than one i don't know i didn't really pay attention i failed my maths a level twice so i don't know not a clue you know which that presumably would have been under a labor government as well no no, no, no. I'm much younger than you, remember? Oh, come on. <laughs> okay, fine, fine. Oh, no, well, no, hang on a sec. The first time was and the second time wasn't. Right, okay. Yeah, because um, I was just under 18 years old in 2010 when the Tories won, which was exceptionally good news for me because I would, to my eternal shame, have definitely voted Lib Dem in 2010. But I was like three weeks shy of being able to vote which at the time I was gutted about, and in retrospect... Well, everyone, everyone, voted, everyone voted Lib Dem back then, because what are your options, right? Yeah, but I mean, to be fair, I was 18 or 17 at the time. I was ne- Yeah, yeah, You yeah. were 35. What's your excuse? Oh, uh, like- yeah, fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my question is, how does one get to be a faith champion? Is there a tournament? Can I enter? <laughs> yeah, speaking at the annual faiths reception at the Labour's 2022 conference... The leader said MPs and peers will be message carriers and engage with specific communities. So this, I think and hope, a demonstration of how we want to engage. Faith champions will report directly to Starmer and will work with local authorities and faith-based organisations with the aim to replicate the volunteering and community action that took place during the height of the COVID pandemic. It basically goes on to talk about, uh, it's always faith groups doing stuff to help our communities. You show the best of us. Labour have a shadow faith minister. I don't know what that is, but she is called Sarah Owen. And she said, working with faith groups can make a vital contribution. Then he talks about how great the Queen was and how important (laughs) it was she was religious. Wouldn't be a Keir Starmer speech without that. And then finally... It turns out Labour has a faith envoy as well as a shadow faith minister. Labour's faith envoy is a figure that has appeared before on this podcast. Do you have any guesses who it is? Is it's a Labour MP? What as a as a guest? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, as an enemy, official enemy of the podcast. So what is it? Faith envoy. Faith envoy. A Labour MP. Labour MP. Um, so they're going to be a person of faith of some description. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk shit about them so you can assume they're a Christian <laughs> it's not someone like Chris Bryant is it have we talked no, shit about him before good guess I don't think we have and Bryant Chris Bryant's gay right yeah yeah, yeah. and he's a and he's an ordained priest although I, I don't know his exact practice these days 
No, so by picking a gay person, you've gone for the exact opposite of what you should be going for here. It is, of oh, course, no. Stephen Tims. Yeah, Stephen <laughs> Tims. Oh, as soon as you said the exact opposite, I was like, Stephen Tims. Got to be Stephen Tims. Uh, for those oh, who don't mate. remember, Stephen Tims pops up surprisingly regularly. He seems to basically just hang around the Labour Party doing anything related to faith and religion and therefore pops up on this podcast quite regularly, uh, usually as an antagonist. He, as has been noted before, is someone who basically threatened to quit the Shadow Cabinet under Ed Miliband if he wasn't allowed to vote against gay marriage. Hey man, um, maybe maybe we should get him on the pod to just put his side of the story across. Okay, so here's the thing. Right? You did this <laughs> joke last time about Tim Farron. Did I so, actually? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mate... <laughs> You're going to start thinking that I, I, I'm actually yeah. a reactionary, aren't you? Um, yeah, and yeah, it does start to worry me that you're just like, you know, maybe, maybe you are becoming like a centrist. You know, that, that Bible college <laughs> Mate, I'm, I'm, life is. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm 34 this year. Like, I am mm. turning into a centrist dad. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming yeah. for you. It comes for us all. Got, got the gut for it, it already. It doesn't come for us all, of course. You don't actually get more concerned as you get older. It's simply that left-wing people tend to be more working class, and working class people die younger. That's why the demographics screw that way. Oh, it's such a depressing episode. But, uh, <laughs> uh, Stephen Timms said, Far from being a problem, religious conviction is taking on a new valuable role, inspiring vital community initiatives and campaigns for social justice at a national and international level. In some ways... <laughs> social justice, like threatening to, to leave and flounce out if uh, yeah. if you don't get to be homophobic. Is that, yeah, is that that's, what it, that's, yeah, that's yeah, social okay. justice. Yeah, yeah. The thing about uh, this entire article, you could replace every quote in it with and it would make just as much sense. Like, it is <laughs> just fluff and nonsense in this article. The thing is, it's also it's also hard to take this seriously, right? I mean, first of all, you know, I'm getting some serious, like, big society vibes here. You know, yes. Cameron's flagship policy, right? Oh, faith and community groups are the ones who are really d- getting down in the community. And, and basically what he's saying is we want these groups to pick up the pieces from our fuck-ups, right? That's what he was saying. Yeah. And, and this is the same energy. The other thing is, it's pretty hard to take this seriously, knowing what's been going on in the in the Labour Party in recent months um, regarding Apsana Begum. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, there's a, a lot of Islamophobic abuse being sent her way and the leader's office refusing to even acknowledge any of it at all, refusing to stop her deselection or, or I can't remember what it is, a, like a deselection. So yeah, to give a bit of context, she is currently going through a deselection process, which essentially means she'll have to run again for the right to be the Labour candidate at the next election, which is it is something that happens. Generally, it's kind of hand-raised through. One of the things that Corbynism tried and ultimately failed mostly to do was to make these processes a bit more serious and a bit more mm-hmm. effective in terms of removing your unpleasant right-wing MPs from the mix. But that process is what she's going through right now. But it appears to be led and pushed by her abusive ex-husband, who is still a member of the Labour Party. He essentially pushed her through a court case that she was found innocent of as a continuation of his domestic abuse, which is a real phenomenon. And um, he continues to hold a lot of sway in that local Labour Party. And in particular, there is accusations that essentially some dodgy dealings and some electoral fraud has happened 
uh, leading to her yeah, being involved in this process. Regardless of what you think about her reselection, it is pretty clear that this is someone who has faced serious and unpleasant domestic abuse, which has led to a widespread Islamophobia directed against her. And, and let's be clear about why this is happening as well, because this is quite clearly being used as a factional battle, right? Afsana Begum is on the left of the party. She's in the Socialist Campaign Group. And it seems that whilst people like Keir Starmer are quite happy to wax lyrical about how they are dealing with anti-Semitism in the party, they're quite happy at the same time to capitalise on Islamophobia and, as we've seen, extensions of her domestic abuse in order to fight a factional battle against an MP that they would rather was deselected in favour of um, someone who sits on their side of the party. So it's complete hypocrisy all the way to the top. And, you know, I mean, at this point, are we surprised? Yeah, unless you think it is a one-off thing involving just the relationship between Starmer and Begum. Uh, Zara Sultana spoke very movingly uh, in Parliament about the Islamophobic abuse she has received. When young Muslim girls ask me what it's like. I'd like to say there's nothing to worry about, that they would face the same challenges as their non-Muslim friends and colleagues. But Madam Chair, in truth, I can't say that because in my short time in Parliament, that's not my experience. So let me read out a few examples. One person, for example, wrote to me and I quote, Sultana, you and your Muslim mob are a real danger to humanity. Another wrote, I'm a cancer everywhere I go, and soon they said, Europe will vomit you out. A third called me a terrorist sympathiser and scum of the earth, and that sanitised of their unparliamentary language. I have discovered that to be a Muslim woman, to be outspoken and to be left-wing, is to be subject to this barrage of racism and hate. It's to be treated by some as if I were an enemy of the country that I was born in, as if I don't belong. It was summed up by these words in a handwritten letter, and I quote, if you can't stand the racism, perhaps you'd be happier going back to your country of origin, foreigner. Chair, it's worse when I speak up for migrants' rights in support of the Palestinian people or criticise Tony Blair for the war on Afghanistan. One abusive letter said, and I quote, our cities are full of Muslims, Send them to Pakistan. Another suggested that I must support the Taliban, all because I'm Muslim and against endless war. You know, she was clearly very emotional and very upset about it. It was a really um, powerful and upsetting speech to watch. And she recently mentioned, I mean, that was maybe a couple of years ago now, a little while back. Uh, she recently mentioned uh, that she has never heard a peep from the leader's office about any of it given that she explicitly says there are some Labour people as well who were threatening her, sending her Islamophobic abuse. Well, this is here's the extent of it, right? Because um, Absana Begum has received no support from the leader's office, and yet she has received messages of support from Conservative MPs. Right, yeah. And at that point, you've got to ask what sort of evil fuckery is going on in, in the Labour leadership office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to kind of roll back to the, the faith champions thing, I think 
it's a shame in some ways this wasn't announced before the episode we did on Christian identity and politics because a lot of the things we identified in there are kind of you know happening more broadly in this one you know we see a kind of a vague appeal to faith and faith communities absent of any specifics that is really just meant to reinforce we're on your side we get it Sending Stephen Timms out as a faith envoy is so funny. It's quite transparent, really. Your actual shadow faith minister, whatever the flip that means, is a serious person. And then you've got Timms going out there. And his job is basically to signal to particularly homophobic Christians, but perhaps other religions that are homophobic as well, it's basically okay to be homophobic but just you know a little wink and a nudge it's all right don't worry about it we're on your side we get it without actually having the main person be a horrible little homophobic turd i've got to say i mean i know you're sort of you're saying oh what does what the fuck does that mean and that's a valid question in terms of you know a faith minister or shadow faith minister i i don't have a a problem you know in the grand scheme of electoral politics of there being a faith minister and a, and a shadow faith minister. I think that could potentially be a very good thing, depending on you know what you do with that. The the question is, who do you have in that role? And when you've got, as you say, someone like Stephen Timms in that role, who a is clearly there to behave in really pretty nasty ways towards you know LGBTQIA plus community, and you know I'm gonna say it seems to me is sort of using a lot of that clout for his own recognition. You know, when you've got someone like that in the role, and someone, I think, as well, who is using it basically as a way of pushing a particular brand of Christianity, you've got to ask some serious questions about what what that role is doing. It could be good. It could be used well. But ultimately, if you've got someone who just wants to see his own faction whether that be christianity or, or you know faction within the party pushed and others pushed down then that role is a pretty toxic role yeah 100 percent. and i think for me as i said there's not i, I think it's the word faiths that annoys me uh, this is partly because i grew up with the whole it's not a religion it's a relationship so anytime <laughs> people avoid saying religion it, it irks me you and me both <laughs> yeah um, so i'm like just call it the religions minister man like and faith is such a nebulous term that i don't know what it's meant to signify or suggest i mean uh, maybe you have some ideas but it it just feels really weird to talk about faiths it's not it's not it's not how people talk. It's not. It's not a normal term. Mm. It only exists in these kind of weird political spaces. It clumps a whole lot of stuff together that actually doesn't really make sense to put together, or has you know serious differences in them enough to make it a kind of unsustainable clumping. Yeah, I just think it's a really odd phrase. I mean, I, I suspect a, a part of why they do that is that there's possibly more baggage with a term like religion. Mm. right and that is reflected in in the whole like it's not a religion it's a relationship kind of thing i i I kind of had some of that as well when i was a teenager and you know took um a friend who you know broadly shared a similar outlook to me to to sort of say to me when you know when i said that oh you know don't be stupid of course it's a religion (laughs) it just took that that kind of thing (laughs) for me to be like okay yeah maybe you're right (laughs) maybe i need to reconsider this and because when people say that when people say it's not a religion it's a relationship what they're doing is that they are rejecting uh, a certain 
way to do their faith. And it's quite a, it's not just, you know, a form of Christian supremacy. It's, it's a denominational or factional battle within Christianity to kind of denigrate and, and suggest that other Christians aren't actually Christians and we are the real way of doing Christianity. Um, so I think that's, that, that's why that's so, such a, a loaded thing as well. I'm not sure ultimately whether there's really a, a term that is going to do the job as we would want it done. Um, but I don't know. That's my take on it anyway. I think that is probably just about all we have time for. A uh, bit of a mixed bag of an episode. Uh, hopefully it wasn't too depressing. Yeah, I, I don't know what to say, man. That was such a depressing episode. But <laughs> maybe there were moments of light in it. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Adam, where in the world can people find you? You can find me on most social media platforms at XIAN. Wonderful. You can find the podcast at Facebook, facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. Find us on Twitter, Twitter at bread underscore rosaries. You can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing from people. Uh, we'd love to hear back from you. Yeah, that'll do us for this week. We'll be back next time. Uh, maybe next time we'll do a slightly more structured episode where I read the thing that I was meant to read beforehand. And so we actually do the topic we're planning to do. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, thank you very much, Adam, and we'll see you all next time. Cheers. See you next time. Cheers.